New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The late Swami Kriyananda has said, the brain and nervous system limits consciousness like a reducing valve limits the flow of water. What I take him as saying is that throughout our lives, our brains have formed heavily grooved neural circuits, which are primarily focused on the physical world of our senses. It keeps our focus on what we can hear, touch, see, smell, and taste. So this begs the question, is there another field of reality in which we are ostensibly unaware? If so, how might we open ourselves up to the enormous potential of that larger field of reality? Our guest, Joseph Selby, and I will be exploring how we can rewire our brains to tap directly into this superconscious intelligence. For nearly 50 years, Joseph Selby has been a dedicated meditator and has taught meditation and yoga throughout Europe and the United States. He's a founding member of Ananda, a meditation-based community and spiritual movement inspired by Paramahansa Yogananda. He resides with his wife at the long-standing Ananda Village near Nevada City, California. Joseph Selby is the author of The Physics of God and also Break Through the Limits of the Brain, Neuroscience, Inspiration, and practices to transform your life. Join us for the next hours. We explore how to rewire our brain to access superconsciousness with our guest, Joseph Selby. I'm speaking with Joseph in his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Joseph, welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Oh, well, I've been looking forward to it, too. And I remember years ago visiting Ananda Village when Kriyananda was alive and, and, and well and functioning there. That was a wonderful place. I would love to begin with the brain as a filtering system. How does the brain work in that way? Can you help us understand? Well, the brain is a obliging servant. So whatever we do, over and over, 
the brain will create circuits to support that. So that all starts when we're, uh, you know, infants trying to make sense of the world around us and trying to coordinate our body's movements and crawling and walking. And as we do that, as infants, uh, we're actually building circuits in our brain, many of them that will last the rest of our life, that uh, help us walk, help us talk, help us coordinate uh, with sensory input with our movements. And these are vital for us to be able to, to operate. If we didn't have those uh, circuits that we created when we were quite young, we would be forever infants, if you will. It would be almost impossible for us to do anything because it takes so long to think through every muscular movement to achieve it. So the brain is a, is a great servant in that regard. The brain also supports um, the kind of emotional responses that we have. It supports trains of thought. You know, certain things will trigger a train of thought and we'll begin following that train in our mind. And it triggers memories. So all of this works really well for us. But the side of it that is the challenge is that whatever circuits we develop are automatic. So any kind of stimulus that is associated with a particular circuit, and I often, often use the, uh, the coffee drinking circuit as an example, you know, all we need is a whiff of coffee. And it'll set off the entire neural circuit, and it can be quite complex, that will begin making us salivate, will begin uh, getting the heart rate up, uh, it will recall for us memories of past times we've had coffee, and on and on. It, it's, it, uh, it touches every part of us if we have a strong coffee drinking habit. I think in your book, uh, Joseph, you you talk about it's like a fireworks display that can go off. Yeah, exactly. You've probably all seen uh, a long woven chain of firecrackers and you light one firecracker at one end and it just goes all the way through. Well, our brain is like that. So once the coffee circuit fires, it could fire another circuit, which could in turn fire another kind of circuit. And generally our day, our entire day, uh, once we're conscious, is made up of different circuits in our brain firing. And when they fire, the things that are associated with that, be they emotions or thoughts or memories, physical movements, and you can hear a piece of music and you start moving your body. To, to to dance, perhaps. So they're very, very helpful, but they're also really, really powerful in determining our moment-to-moment -moment experience. We are far more than any of us probably would like it to be the case um, on autopilot. You know, uh, this reminds me of an experiment, and you mentioned this in your work also, um, which is just this wonderful experiment that really gives us a view as to how 
our our brain can limit us in what we see and what we are perceiving. And this was the gorilla experiment. Do you recall that? Can you describe that for us? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, It was on the internet, so I imagine it's still on the internet somewhere. But uh, when I uh, encountered it, I started a, a video, probably a YouTube video, and it told me to count the number of times six people bounced a basketball to each other around in a kind of rough circle. And so being goal-oriented, I paid really hard attention to that basketball and, you know, counted and counted and counted and counted. And all I could focus on was the basketball. So then that segment ends and it says, well, how many did you guess? And obviously it, it can't hear me, but, I, you know, I said, well, 16 or whatever I said. And then it says, and did you see the gorilla? And uh, like probably everybody else, I went, wait, what? What gorilla? And so then it played the exact same video back. Only this time I'm not watching the basketball. And while I was busily watching the basketball, a guy in a gorilla suit actually just walked right through all the people bouncing the ball. And I didn't see it because I was so focused on the ball itself. So the mind does this a lot. It fills in things, puts shadows where there aren't shadows, uh, obviously takes a gorilla out where there actually was a gorilla. And so so the brain is, uh, or the senses really, are not like video cameras or microphones where they record absolutely every little bit of uh, what we're perceiving. But they give us slices of it. They give us pieces of it. And then our mind fills in the rest from what we already know or expect. Is this like... um an analogy you talk about about the iceberg, like there's the part of the iceberg we see, and then there's this whole big part that we're not perceiving. That's the other aspect of the brain is that there's a huge uh, percentage of the brain. I don't know what it is, but it might even be 90% of the brain um, has circuits that are devoted to the autonomic systems in our body that keeps our heart beating and our breath rate uh, in balance to what's needed and digests food, eliminates waste, everything that we don't pay any attention to, nor could we influence generally, even if we could be aware of it. So that's going on constantly. And then there's the, the above the water part of the iceberg, which is you know, what we are thinking about or emotions we're feeling or uh, actions we're taking. So we have all this going on. So we're on automatic pilot a lot of the time. We can always not be on automatic pilot if we become present and consider whether we want to do what our immediate impulse is to do. Because the immediate impulse is what our brain is telling us. And so we, we can always turn off autopilot, but if we don't put the will out or the attention into it, autopilot takes over. And so the autopilot is just completely involved in what we see around us, what the 
uh, senses can perceive, conversations we have with people, thoughts about people, thoughts about what we're doing. We're, we are uh, completely involved in what nearly everyone assumes is the only thing we could be involved in, right? It's, it's very compelling the picture that the senses give us of the world and ourself in that world. Absolutely. And it seems seamless. But there are people who have experiences outside of that. You have near-death experiencers who have profound experiences of uh, their subtle reality. They go to the heavens. Uh, they experience themselves very deeply. We have saints and sages who, who tell us there's much more that we can perceive, but our brain doesn't let us. Our brain is, is filtering out that information. So that is what your work is all about. And that's uh, to, to help us to open up our, let's say, I'll call it our aperture, <laughs> so that we tap into this larger reality. And I know that... Um, you speak briefly about this in your your own book and your own life changing experience that you had at one point with psychedelics. Let's uh, get back to that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners. I'm here with Joseph Selby, and he's the author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain: Neuroscience, Inspiration, and Practices to Transform Your Life, and if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, josephselby.com. And he spells his last name S-E-L-B as in boy, I-E, josephselby.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Joseph Selby. He's the author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain. And I, I just want you to mention briefly, you had an experience of this, a powerful experience of this other reality, of, of a bigger reality. What can we call it? Superconscious reality or the reciprocal quantum intelligence. Uh, people have a lot of names for it. So just describe that a little bit and what that was like for you. Well, in the uh, early 70s, um, I did a lot of recreational psychedelic use, but I had one or two really standout experiences 
one in particular that I talk about in the introduction to the book that really convinced me that there was much more to myself than I was aware of. And a lot of, for those of you who haven't taken psychedelic drugs, a lot of the experience is just uh, the oddity of your perceptions being uh, blurred in a way. You see lights in a way that you never saw them before, et cetera. Uh, but when you get past the perceptual sort of fun and games of psychedelics, there is this profound feeling of peace and well-being uh, that is utterly disconnected from what's happening in your life. And this is uh, making it popular these days to help treat people in depression because it allows them to get past this big you know, mountain of grief or, or disappointment or whatever it is that is at the heart of their depression. So for me, it was a matter of getting past just the, the surface thoughts and the thoughts around what I was doing in that immediate time frame. And I felt wonderfully expanded. I felt wonderfully joyful. I felt uh, like the person I would like to be. And for many days after that particular experience, uh, I was that person, but then it it goes away. Joseph, I want to ask you, does it totally go away once we open to something like this, whether it's psychedelics or near-death experience or some moment of of awe and wonder standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or whatever it might be for us that something just like opens us up to something much larger than ourselves. Do you believe, and at least I I believe that that aperture, whatever that is, never quite closes up completely? I agree. Uh, I think that the intensity of the moment doesn't remain, but I think the lessons of the moment definitely remain. And as you say, your aperture, your awareness of what's possible remains forever open. Very, very intense experiences, like near-death experiences, uh, apparently will not only stay with you in, in memory and point of view, but they'll actually rewire your brain. And deep, meditational experiences will rewire your brain. So not only do you have the memory of the experience, but you also have a, a changed way of being along with it. So you mentioned meditation. So this is one of your main ways that you suggest to us that we can rewire the brain. And there's something that I ran across, a quote that you used in the book, it was um, by um, Andrew Nurberg, a, a medical doctor, and he was the person who wrote um, How God Changes Your Brain. I, I had never quite read this before because he had said the gentler forms of meditation, you know, of course, will reduce and lower our stress and anxiety. But he goes on to say that it will not 
break down or break down the, the neurological circuits that keep those old beliefs firmly rooted in place. So um, how tell us about that, because I'm, I hadn't read that before, because and that's what your work is about. You're saying, OK, it's more than just our calming down meditation. You're you're suggesting another kind of meditation where where it's really going to rewire our brain circuits. I think it comes down to the intensity of the experience that you can achieve when you meditate. So most of the time, and I count myself into that most of the time, I don't manage to go so deep that I become totally focused and unaware of any other sensory reality going on around me. But I have had those experiences. And I know that not only are they wonderful, they tend to last. They tend to make days to weeks be changed. But I also have come to realize from researching this book that they actually change the circuits in my brain or create new circuits, making it easier to have that kind of experience. That's all the circuits are. They just support some kind of experience or behavior. So if you keep having deep experiences in meditation, your brain rewires to support those so that when you sit to meditate, it's easier to have it. Now, whether that's easier to have a, a wonderful experience that relieves stress or whether it's to feel the presence of God, it's the same principle as far as your brain is concerned. Your brain doesn't care. <laughs> your brain is the, the obliging servant. It just creates whatever circuits you want it to create by repeating your actions. But it's definitely true uh, that the more intense the experience, the more quickly you rewire your brain. And we see this especially with near-death experiencers. Um, a common theme uh, across all near-death experiencers is that when they return, they feel different. They're not the same person they were. And I genuinely think what this means is that the circuits that were their previous autopilot are no longer the strongest circuits. And they have new circuits, and those new circuits have to deal with uh, learning to be loving and kind to people. And they're freed of any former fear of death. So it's, in a way, there's, they come back realizing you can't make a real mistake. <laughs> there's nothing you can do in any lifetime that is a you know a lasting problem they're just all learning experiences and most of them have to do with uh learning to love and to give more and they come back just completely open to whatever their life has to offer them and i think for for many of us we're you know we're somewhat at odds with our life It'd be parts of our life we like parts of our life we don't want to embrace parts of our life we don't want to think about, where the motivation 
to want to think about some things and not other in our life is that we've we've given them our own value judgment. This is a good part of me. This is a bad part of me. Where near-death experiencers and those who have had, you know, deep meditational experiences that are equally powerful at transforming the circuits in the brain have a sort of release, a relaxation into what is with no fear or need for things to unfold in any particular way. One of one of the uh, phrases that I've used for many years when I looked at, okay, what am I most deeply afraid of and go down and down and down to look at my fear? And I've come up with a phrase, well, I can't fall out of the universe is what, <laughs> what I came up with. And and then uh-huh. uh and this reminds me of a quote that I, I know that you bring up in in your book. Um this is by Carl Jung, and um, he says, "If I'm, I'm going to read this quote because I think it, it applies. It is an almost absurd prejudice to suppose that existence can only be physical. As a matter of fact, the only form of existence of which we have immediate knowledge is psychic. We might as well say, on the contrary, that physical existence is mere inference since we know of matter only insofar as we perceive psychic images mediated by the senses. So we might say, uh, but I, I love this quote. I mean, he's just saying, hey, it's, it's, it's all um, <laughs> mediated. It's, 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 we're living in a soup of something else, and we just think it's all physical. And the material scientists will, you know, they want to quantify everything. And, and because it, this other reality is not really quantifiable. So I, my question for you, Joseph, how do we know that it's real? This, this other reality, this, uh, this, quantum field of superconsciousness? Well, I think you can be led by your mind to come to believe in it, but it's only a belief until you experience it. Once you experience it, it's just knowledge. It's just You're just as certain of it as you are of you know, the, the material world around you. They're not, it's not evanescently unreal. When you become connected to it, in many ways, it's more real. That's one of the things also that saints, sages, and near-death experiencers say is this world that the senses show us is the unreal world. <laughs> and that the world that the near-death experiencers uh, discovered feels much more real. There's this immediate feeling of, oh, this is, this is reality. This is home where that is some kind of three dimensional, uh, slideshow done with mirrors of which I'm unhappily a part, but, uh, but in it. That, that just reminds me of the, the, 
one of the problems with materialistic science has been that idea of non-locality and how uh, how things at a distance can affect one another. They've had experiments of this, and this is like part of the whole picture, I I think, of what what you're talking about. We'll go into that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Joseph Selby. He is the author of Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain, Neuroscience, Inspiration, and Practices to Transform Your Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Joseph Selby, and we're just talking about the scientific reality of non-locality, which then just kind of puts a kibosh on that kind of sensory thing that we would say we can quantify everything and everything works this way. So what what can you say about non-locality and where where our thoughts, our memories, our emotions are actually located. So let's flesh out that a bit if we can. Well, I think non-locality is the uh, primary place where uh, science and spirituality meet. Uh, It is so because quantum physics and string theory and M-theory, which is part of string theory, all require non-locality to be a reality in order for all of their equations to work. It's not uh, an odd sort of thought that they've come up with that maybe there's such a thing as non-locality. It really is necessary for the way their equations work for it to exist. Now, what it is and um, whether it's knowable in the way that we know the space we live in in the, in the physical world is something that they debate, but they don't debate whether non-locality actually exists. Most physicists probably think of non-locality as a peculiar, uh, almost artifact of the way reality works, and that it's there to support the material world in a very real sense. But It also is spaceless, timeless, and purely energetic. There is no matter in non-locality. And it has its own rules. That's why they talk of it being non-local. So we have local rules, and then there are non-local rules. So entanglement is a non-local rule. And uh, it confounds our local rules, this notion that you can split a photon and send each half at the speed of light in opposite directions, and that they will still be able to somehow communicate to each other, uh, breaks all local laws. 
but it's the only way to explain the measured results of experiments that say entanglement is real. So what is non-locality? If you look at how people describe the heavens, they describe it as spaceless, timeless, purely energetic. It's pure light. We use the term uh, from, from India, astral. It just means light, light regions. And light is just pure energy. And if you delve all the way into M theory, which is my favorite kind of matchup of science and spirituality, in M theory, they posit that there has to be these layers of different levels of frequency of energy in non-locality in order for their equations to balance out with what is observed in the physical world. And those levels, those layers of increasingly higher frequency energy fit exactly the notion of there being layers of heavens. There are lower heavens and higher heavens. There's the seventh heaven. And they all have share this common thread that the lowest level, the lowest heaven, is the lowest frequency. And then the frequency increases up to the higher layers. So this is also mentioned in many different um, traditional religions throughout yeah. the world, the, the, the different levels of, of heavens. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the Buddhists have it, the Hindus have it, obviously Christians have it, and, and the uh, Muslims have it. It's everywhere in established religions and particularly in experiential spirituality traditions like the Kabbalah and like yoga, where people are directly experiencing these these levels through the practices of their particular esoteric tradition. So part of what that tells us is that there could be life after death, that science is giving us the foundation, non-locality, for a reality that exists beyond the physical. The other thing that I love about it is that in order for the experiences of the near-death experiencers and the testimony of the saints and sages to be true in the experience of how we die, where people feel, many near-death experiences say, I was the exact same person. I had all the same thoughts. I had all the same ability to feel. And I had the, the feeling that there was a body, but I knew the body wasn't a physical body. And when they come back, they feel like they're in a tighter, less real dimension. But what they're really experiencing is that they've always been, for the most part, in heaven. As I put it in the book, we always have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven because we have our subtle energy body, our astral body, perpetually. We always have it. We can't not have it. And we have it even when we're operating in the physical world. And that's where our thoughts, our memories, our feelings exist. So they always exist there. They're never physical. They're always non-local. But we can interact with them and uh, have those thoughts, experience those feelings, because we're equally in our 
subtle body as we are in a physical body. I know that you say something, uh, there might be a chapter that we, we don't have to wait till we die to experience right. this. Like this is available to us right now. I, I'm thinking about a, a quote that, that you mention in, in your work. And I haven't run across this. I, I ran across um, the uh, Max Planck quote about consciousness, that, that everything is is derived of consciousness. But here's another one. And this is with um, Dr. Hans-Peter Durer, who was the former head of the Max Planck Institute of Physics in Munich. And here's what he said, because I, I really love this. What we consider the here and now, this world, it is actually just the material level that is comprehensible to the senses. The beyond is an infinite. Now, now this is a physicist talking here. He says the beyond is an infinite reality that is much bigger, which this world is rooted in. In this way, our lives in this plane of existence are encompassed surrounded by the afterworld already. The body dies, but the spiritual realm feel continues. In this way, I am immortal. I mean, I just find that just astounding coming from a physicist who is rooted in, in science, so to speak. Well, a lot of physicists Followed the logic of non-locality to its logical uh, suggestion, which is that there is a reality beyond the physical. And many of them not only embraced it, but really wanted to understand it and started looking into things like Vedanta uh, to, to see if the direct experiences of saints and sages could explain what their math and their theory is telling them. So there were, particularly in the early decades of the development of quantum physics, there were a lot of physicists who thought that connections were unmistakable. And it was only maybe 50s or 60s that physics sort of settled down into more what can be provable, what can be uh, exploited to to put into use in the in the world today. But it's a deep trend in quantum physics that it's it's really responsible for kind of pulling back the curtain on an, another realm of reality beyond the physical. Right, right. So let's let's get into some of the in your book you say there are practices that can transform our life and that can help uh put us in touch with this other reality, this larger, not other, it's just this reality in which we are embedded and to know, to, to actually access it for a better life, for more creativity or, or for to tune into our intuition or to, to um, be a better person, to be, to learn more kindness or empathy. So what are some of the practices we can tap into? Well, we've already touched on meditation, but I'll, I'll touch on it again because it's so key to this. And, and, and there's two aspects of meditation that I think are uh, 
key to understanding what you're trying to do when you meditate. And one of them is trying to achieve stillness. And the other is to try to achieve inner absorption. So stillness is necessary for the body to stop sending you signals to the brain, which the brain reacts to. So as anyone who's tried to meditate knows, you tend to squirm a lot. But if you can learn to get past that with a little determination, you will find that the body's, well, first, you'll find that the body's uh, compulsion to keep moving will subside. And then when it does, you also find that your thoughts subside because every movement, every sensory impression that comes into the brain triggers one of those circuits. And if those circuits are connected to thoughts, you start thinking those kind of thoughts. So that's number one. Just just sitting still can be an amazingly wonderful experience. But then add to that the, the second facet of what your goal is in meditation, and that is to get your thoughts to be completely quiet and to be inwardly focused so that you're not drawn into thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow or what somebody said to you yesterday. And you're just present. The the mind is not running muck. Then you have a profoundly deeper experience. Then you be, it's not that you stop having any experience at all, which a lot of people are either afraid of or assume that if you're not feeling your body and you're not thinking, then what's left, right? That's sort of the logic of a material perspective on the body. But if you can reach that point, what you experience is so much more. It's this infinite, immortal aspect of yourself. I'm here with Joseph Selby, and we're talking about uh, practices that can transform our life and put us in touch with that reality that in which we are embedded all the time that can be more make us more creative and better people on this in this physical plane. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Joseph Selby, and I I want to also mention 
There is a kind of meditation that you practice that I had not heard of before. And, and you describe this very, very systematically in your book of how to do it. And I found it fascinating. And it's called a uh, Hung Saw. Hung Saw. H U N S A U. Hung Saw technique of concentration. And um, so I've I've been kind of trying it to see how that might be different from the other way that I've learned to meditate. And so I just want to mention that to our listeners. They might want to look that up. So I, I know that besides meditation, and I know that you say if you get anything from all your work that is that meditation will change your life. Do it daily. Do it. Just keep doing it. So that's one thing that I know you really stand by. But there are another couple of things that you also suggest to us, and that is introspection and affirmation. So let's talk about introspection. Uh, What does that mean, and how does that... um, direct us into a superconscious perception? Well, if, if you're having difficulty meditating, if the mind is galloping and you're unable to sit still, there's every chance that you have some strong emotion running in the background. And introspection is really the best way to understand what emotions are running. Now, you can do this through talking with a good friend. You can do this with a counselor or a minister. All of those are good. But you don't necessarily need to do that if you can just take the time to kind of ask yourself a question. You know, why am I anxious today? Why am I upset today? Whatever it was that was happening in that day, and get a better handle on what your automatic pilot is reacting to during your day. And this just alone identifying what emotions you're running can really help you get to the positive emotional experience that you want to have. So in, in that way, you're, you're, you're asking, okay, like, um, maybe you're you're looking at your day and saying okay what triggered me what what was that thing that triggered me to just kind of fly off the handle and and then i know that you also ask us to go even deeper and say um you know what what do i what do i say to myself that justifies that trigger And I thought that was a great question because it's not just, okay, I was triggered, but then the the tape, the automatic thing saying, well, I was justified to be triggered because blah, blah, blah. And so we go into those justifications. So what what can you tell us about uh, checking out justification? Well, I think that's a great point. And it's something that we all do is that tape runs. That, that automatic train of thought kicks in when we have an emotion. And we often think that it's the other way around, is that we have the thoughts and then we have the emotion. But 
but it's actually we react and then the thoughts come. And by seeing that happen over and over again, you realize that your justifications are just uh, just that. You didn't logically arrive at the fact that you ought to be mad at somebody. <laughs> you just got mad at them right away. And then you have the justifications. So again, you kind of peel away another layer and you understand what's, what is autopilot uh, doing in your life. And if you don't like it, which generally these kind of negative emotions are in the end unpleasant, then affirmations is a great way to start planting in your mind the opposite truth to what triggered your anger. Generally, if it's anger, if something isn't going the way we think it should go. We have an attachment to it. Now, there can be deep, long-lasting anger that is more complex and would require more uh, introspection to get to. But it's generally a reaction to, it's not going the way I want. So an affirmation that essentially says, everything is exactly as it should be. Everything comes to me for my own highest good. And say it not once, because the first time you say it, especially, especially if you're still a little upset, 90% of you is saying, ha, <laughs> that's not true. This was this was horrible. Susie should never have done that to me. But if you say it methodically every day, particularly as you go into or come out of meditation, you're actually building another neural circuit that could be the one that fires the next time Susie is annoying or something you really want doesn't happen that you're building an, another reaction process, which is a positive reaction, which rather than being unhappy with someone, you're accepting. Now, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish and say that, you know, a week's worth of affirming this is going to make you feel saintly towards everybody <laughs> who, who irritates you. But in time, it really will, because you're affirming a deeper truth, a deeper reality. And the equanimity of the saints and the calmness and the joy of the saints is that they don't react to things that they have no control over. So you're saying that we're like the equanimity of the saints. Are we tuning into and, and calling on their practice that will help us in our practice? Is that possible? Well, I think you could do that. I would probably say it more this way, that the, you're calling to yourself, you're, you're helping yourself have the same experience that they have by creating these new circuits in the brain, which trigger that feeling or that experience. And when you do have these deeper experiences, you're also doing more rewiring of the brain by just having the positive experience. I'm thinking like as we first start practicing this, and I, I'm just wondering about like affirmations, 
do we have to totally believe the affirmation for it to be effective for us? Because it's kind of like taking baby steps. Like maybe I don't feel worthy and maybe I don't feel totally safe and the universe is a safe place. Uh, Help me. It it is important to believe it. So if the affirmation that I just kind of spilled out there seems unbelievable to you, then find what you can believe and affirm something that takes you in a positive direction away from negative uh, emotional reactions that you no longer want. So believing it is important. Now, to begin with, you may not fully believe it. You may believe it on the surface of your mind, but you don't believe it emotionally, that's okay because the repetition that you do when you do affirmations, the purpose of that is to awaken the emotional belief. So if it is a truth, then it will resonate with your being. It'll resonate with your deeper self. And when it does that, it'll resonate with your emotions. Are you saying that then you will grow into it if it has some sort of ring of truth to you, even if it's not totally accepted yet, but it has a ring of truth. So to start there and then let it just sit with you and and then it, it will increase in its truthfulness. Yeah. No, and I love the fact that you're saying it has the ring of truth because part of my personal experience is that as I repeat the affirmation uh, silently, I start ringing with that. I start resonating and vibrating. And there's a moment with any affirmation, and it can be a fleeting moment, where you get it, you believe it, you feel it, and then that may pass. But if you keep doing it, you believe it more and more and more. Wow. Okay. Good. Excellent. I I like that. Uh, That's a good explanation. And it's helpful to me because it's hard to just kind of leap into a affirmation, a big one and, and not fully believing it. And then it's just not going to do that much good, I think, for us. But what you're saying is that it's cultivating a kind of habit of affirmations. I, uh, you know, I, we could just talk so much more about so many more things. Uh, but, uh, I, our time has come to an end and I just want to thank you so much, Joseph, for being with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Joseph Selby and he's the author of Breakthrough. The Limits of the Brain, Neuroscience, Inspiration, and Practices to Transform Your Life. And if you want to know more about his work and and also more about the Hong Sa technique of concentration, uh, you can go to his website, and that's josephselby.com. And he spells his last name S-E-L-B-I-E. That's S-E-L-B as in boy, I-E, dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3,766. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.